You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLegge. According to recent data, approximately 15% of Americans are affected by irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. Although many IBS patients may benefit from antibiotics, should these medications be the standard treatment for IBS, or should we use them with caution? Joining us for a point-counterpoint segment to discuss the treatment of IBS with antibiotics is Dr. William Che, professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and director of the GI Physiology Laboratory at the University of Michigan Medical School. Also joining us is Dr. Mark Pimentel, associate professor of medicine at the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine and director of the section of GI motility at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Dr. Che and Dr. Pimentel. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. Mark Pimentel, I'm going to start with you here. What are the causes of IBS? Do we know? Well, that's the big mystery, Mark. I mean, really, we have a number of theories. The approach in the past, though, if I may harp on that for a second, is really to treat the symptoms and not to really focus on what's the cause. But more recently, there have been a number of theories proposed that may explain the cause of IBS. One of them may be gut bacteria. Bill, from your perspective, what would you consider to be the traditional treatments for IBS for, we'll say, a physician? Well, I think Mark's exactly right. The treatments really have focused on the patient's predominant symptom. As you know, IBS really is a symptom complex, and for that reason can be very challenging for physicians to address because patients don't have just one symptom. They usually have several symptoms. Now, we tend to focus on treating the symptoms that's most common or most bothersome to patients, but in all fairness, a lot of the the older treatments have not been very satisfying simply because they commonly don't address the, the full spectrum of symptoms that constitute IBS. In other words, we tended to use fiber to help with constipation. We tended to use antidiarrheals for loose or frequent stools. We tended to use antispasmodics for abdominal pain or discomfort. And they address those specific symptoms reasonably well, but they, none of those therapies tend to be very effective in addressing the whole spectrum of symptoms that IBS patients commonly suffer from. I know as a gastroenterologist, I've been pretty frustrated with this patient population because they're difficult to treat. We've had drugs come on and off the market for treatment of different types of IBS. So I'm going to ask Mark, why are antibiotics often prescribed for IBS patients? Because I see this being done more and more. Well, initially, one of the concepts with IBS that, that I found fascinating was even though the diagnostic criteria for IBS require abdominal pain, so 100% of IBS patients, if you use conventional criteria, have abdominal pain, the most bothersome symptom, despite the stacking of the deck to abdominal pain, is actually bloating. And across all subgroups, of IBS patients, whether they be constipation or diarrhea, bloating seemed to be a factor and the most bothersome symptom, as I've already stated. Well, what would cause the bloating? And that started the concept that perhaps the bloating, perhaps the excessive gases these patients experience are actually due to an excessive amount of bacteria or excessive fermentation by the bacteria in the gut producing all that gas. The intuitive next step from those kinds of discoveries that perhaps bacteria are altered in IBS was to try an antibiotic therapy. And Interestingly, the studies that have been done using antibiotics, in fact, all the studies using antibiotics and IBS have successfully determined that there's some improvement over placebo in these randomized controlled trials. Bill, I'm going to go back to you for a second just on that with regards to, we'll say, 
small bowel bacterial overgrowth or extra intraluminal gas. Do all IBS patients have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? No, I think, though, that what Mark's saying is true, and that is that, that bloating is a very, very common and bothersome symptom in the vast majority of IBS sufferers. However, there are lots of reasons why individuals experience that symptom of bloating. Mark mentioned the issue about bacteria. Of course, the other critical piece of the equation is food. You know, I think that's something that we've tended to ignore over time. It's something that for which there's actually, in the spectrum of, of IBS research, not a whole lot written. But food is probably a, an overlooked and potentially important uh, means by which we can intervene uh, for that symptom of bloating or, or gas. The other thing that I think is um, that's worthy of mention with regard to that symptom that may have relevance specifically to IBS is visceral hypersensitivity. Of course, these patients tend to be more sensitive to whatever form of stimuli occurs in the GI tract, whether it's a response to a meal, whether it's having abdominal pain or discomfort, whether it's being distended from gas that's either normal in amounts or abnormal in amounts. Patients with IBS may be more prone to experience that symptom of bloating. So while bacteria serves as one possible explanation, and I think it does provide an explanation for some patients with IBS, there are other explanations which need to be considered when talking about a symptom that likely has a number of different potential causes. Mark, back to you for a second. There's a lot of physicians listening to this who deal with IBS patients. At this particular point, would you recommend adding antibiotics to the majority of the patients with IBS, or would you be testing for something specific that would help you decide when to use it? Well, here's the challenge. I mean, the difficulty is the diagnostic testing for bacterial overgrowth is difficult to validate because we can't really culture from the small bowel. You have 15 feet of small bowel, most of which we cannot reach with an instrument. And so we really don't know where these bacteria reside. On the basis of breath testing, which is how this all started, there appeared to be a higher rate of abnormal lactulose breath testing, for example, which is a diagnostic test for bacterial overgrowth in IBS patients. And, and that is a, an indirect surrogate. So we use that as a guide. The, the challenge going forward is, do we just empirically try this on all of our IBS patients, or do we find a, a way to subselect patients? I would argue that the patients with profound bloating would be most likely to benefit from an antibiotic approach. So one approach might be if you have patients with severe bloating is to approach it from an antibiotic site. Some patients have the opportunity to go to centers that have breath testing, and if they're experienced enough in doing it, that might be another option. Bill, I'm going to come back to you and get your opinion on that. Great, thank you. You know, I, I think a couple... Other things are worth mentioning. First thing is just understanding how well antibiotics work with regard to improving IBS-related symptoms. And while Mark is absolutely correct in that virtually every well-done study that's evaluated antibiotics versus placebo in IBS patients has shown some benefit for antibiotics over placebo, it's important to realize that the therapeutic gain looks very similar to other therapies that have been proven to be effective for the treatment of IBS. In other words, somewhere between around 35 to 50% of patients treated with antibiotics experience significant degrees of symptom improvement, and that is statistically significantly superior to placebo. But I think we'd all appreciate that that by no means is any kind of a magic bullet for patients with IBS. In other words, optimistically, half of the patients that you treat with antibiotics are going to experience some degree of improvement in their IBS symptoms. So the point is, is I, I think we should view antibiotics as another therapy, but not the therapy 
for IBS, and it, I think it speaks to the underlying heterogeneity, the heterogeneity of the disorder. In other words, the bacterial theory of IBS probably explains symptoms in a subgroup of the total population of IBS sufferers. But if you think about antibiotics as almost a therapeutic probe, the results would suggest that it only explains a subgroup of sufferers, not the whole population. And as Mark said, therein lies the problem. Because we don't have a simple, reliable, reproducible diagnostic test that people can use in the office, we're faced with this difficult decision about whether to empirically treat. I think one issue that needs to be mentioned with regard to antibiotics is that the potential implications of antibiotics are probably a little bit different than many of the other therapies that have been around for a long time and we know are, are reasonably safe in treating IBS. I feel a little bit less uncomfortable with non-absorbed antibiotics, but certainly for systemically absorbed antibiotics, there are potential implications with regard to the repeated use of courses of systemically absorbed antibiotics. And I think we should be careful about this idea about empirically treating everybody with antibiotics. I, for one, am concerned about that. Again, I think it, it may be a little bit different for systemic or non-absorbed antibiotics or antibiotics for which there's good data with regard to the development of resistance. But certainly for the commonly used antibiotics that we've all gotten used to use to treat small bowel bacterial overgrowth, there are potential ramifications to using those antibiotics even once and certainly on repeated occasions. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me for a point-counterpoint segment to discuss the treatment of IBS with antibiotics is Dr. William Che, professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School, and Dr. Mark Pimentel, Associate Professor of Medicine at the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine. Mark, back to you. Can you point us to a few classic articles that support symptom improvement after antibiotic use? Are there some that stick out in your mind? Yes, but before I even get to that, I mean, I think I agree with Bill on his last point. With some caveat, I think what Bill was alluding to is we have to be very careful in how we select our antibiotics. And so, Pointing to some of those studies that you're mentioning, for example, we had conducted a study using neomycin in a double-blind randomized placebo control trial. Neomycin was effective over placebo. It made IBS patients better, but it only did that in about 20%, 25% of subjects. Was it able to make the breath test normal and subsequently be successful? So neomycin wasn't a very good antibiotic. And the other thing that we later learned in another study was that neomycin resistance developed very quickly, which really speaks to what Bill was trying to get at. We later understood a new antibiotic was on the horizon, where Faximin, and this antibiotic was highly effective for bacteria in the gut, not absorbed, and didn't suffer with the issues of resistance. At least in, in a, one of the first studies, we were able to conclude that multiple treatments with Rifaximin did not re seem to result in resistance. Now, I can't speak to years down the road, but certainly in up to three or four treatments, over a period of a couple of years, there really was no effect, no effect on resistance. But I'll, I'll say one more thing because I think it's worth countering what Bill was trying to get at. I think antibiotics are different than conventional therapies, and, and let me try and defend that statement. When other therapies have been tried in irritable bowel syndrome, for example, tegaserod, which is a, was a prokinetic agent for constipation-predominant IBS, you take the drug, you felt better than placebo, but the moment you stop the drug, literally within one week, all the improvement that you gained from the, the medication was undone. The patient returned back to their baseline symptoms. With antibiotics, however, the studies show that 10 days of an antibiotic, the patients remain better for up to 10 weeks of follow-up because that was the length of the follow-up of the study. So something changed in that IBS patient 
in a semi-permanent way. So we've affected a change in, in a presumed cause of IBS, whatever that cause may be, whether it's colon bacteria, small bowel bacteria. And that is unlike any other therapy we've seen with IBS in terms of pharmacologic therapy. So I think antibiotics are different and really open some optimism as to what the mechanisms of IBS really are. Well, I've got to go, Bill, back to you for a second, since uh, there's obviously some different schools of thought on this. From your perspective, Bill, what's the optimal means right now of using antibiotics to treat IBS? How would you recommend, from your perspective, using them? I, too, tend to focus antibiotic therapy on individuals with a predominant complaint of bloating or excessive flatus. And I must say that there is no question in my mind that there's a subgroup of patients that have those symptoms that get better with antibiotic therapy. But in my mind, that's almost a done deal. In other words, I think that there's good evidence. And also, if you talk to most clinicians that have utilized this strategy, most will say that they've identified patients that have experienced not just a little response, but dramatic responses with antibiotic therapy. Mark, back to you. What research then is underway regarding the efficacy of antibiotics and IBS? What should we look forward to? Currently, there are two large phase three studies looking at a, an antibiotic therapy for irritable bowel syndrome. And so these are highly anticipated for a number of reasons. First, they're the largest antibiotic trials in IBS ever. And secondly, there's a fairly significant follow-up period to see what the duration of benefit is, albeit it's only 12 weeks, but still it gives us a glimpse at any kind of relapse rates that might be occurring. This will be hopefully for the future of an indication of, of a product on the basis of antibiotics for IBS. One of the challenges we have with using antibiotics in IBS is that the insurance providers have yet to be convinced that the data are enough. And I think these two phase three studies will be convincing if they truly succeed in, in what they're trying to accomplish. But I, I, you know, I do agree with Bill that you know, antibiotic retreatment is going to be a challenge for the future. I think what we're trying to use this information for for, for the future is if bugs are part of this, if bugs are part of IBS, and these antibiotic trials with sustained benefit after only 10 days of an antibiotic suggest a pathophysiology, it also suggests a direction of research, uh, a way to kind of hone in on gut flora and figure out what exactly is going on with these gut flora to make them relapse, to uh, better treat them on a more chronic basis without necessarily reaching every time for an antibiotic. And so at least now we have a target and perhaps a target for the pathophysiology of a portion of IBS patients. I would like to thank my guests from the University of Michigan Medical School, Dr. William Che, and from the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine, Dr. Mark Pimentel. Dr. Che and Dr. Pimentel, thank you very much for being our guests this week on GI Insights. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.